The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, it's good to see everyone. It's an exciting uh, time for us this summer to be studying uh, the end times and to uh, uh, dig into what the Scripture has to say on this. And let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather as the people of God. And Lord, it's just fantastic to study the Word of God, to to be uh, saturating our minds in Scripture. It's also uh, of great worth to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and not just to study the Bible, but to hear what's going on in each other's lives, to lift each other up, bear each other's burdens, as it says very plainly, and to love uh, one another. So I pray that you would just be blessing everything that happens here this evening, uh, not just for this hour, but also um, choir practice, the other things that are going in preparation for Sunday morning, and uh, just the conversations that happen afterwards as we can build each other up in the Lord. But be with uh, us now as we study the Word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, uh, my desire is to just introduce the topic of um, eschatology or end-time teaching and to just give a a basic overview on how we are uh, going to proceed, how we're going to study uh, these things. So this word eschatology, this is the place to begin. And uh, basically, it's it's a study of the last things. The Greek word eschatos means last and it shows up in many places, but uh, specifically for our study, we can see it in 1 John 2.18, which says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And uh, Hebrews 1.2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So what we are, we're studying um, the doctrine of final things or the end times, uh, what's going to happen in the future. Uh, That's what we're looking at. Generally considered the study of final events, both from a personal and a universal standpoint. Now, this topic is always of great interest to people. People are always interested in studying about eschatology, about end times. Um, Why is that? Why is there such an intense uh, interest in this? Why can a series of novels like those written by Tim LaHaye and all that, the Left Behind series, which has such shallow um, characters and plot development and such, you know, I don't know, not overly skillful writing, still sells tens of millions of copies. What is going on behind all that? Why such interest in end times? What do you think? I think the biblical imagery is very, it's very vivid. Okay. About this. And so, let's... That's right. That's right. We're yearning. We're saying, uh, "Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha." We want Him to come. I think at the root part of it is just the difficulty of everyday life. I mean, let's face it: we struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. We've got our own battles. Uh, we uh, we struggle with the basic uh, issues of life: uh, food, clothing, and shelter, providing for our needs. Uh, we're yearning for all that to be over. <laughs> And uh, if, we could, if we could know, uh, you know, what it's going to be like to be somewhat elevated up out of our immediate circumstances that are so trying and so difficult, there's a, there's a sense of that. And, and people are willing to even pay the price of extreme suffering, you know, just because the everyday life uh, can be so burdensome. They say, well, if I could know we're in the final era, I wouldn't mind going through, you know, the, the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. I would say read it again, <laughs> see what it's actually going to be like. You know, um, but uh, all of that. And maybe it's a, a bit of escapism, perhaps. But more than that, a, a yearning to see Christ, a yearning to be with Him, a yearning to be free of our own sin, frankly, a yearning to be in a perfect world, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. So all of those things come in. Now, I would say this. Many have become wealthy. I won't name any names, but uh, certainly famous by speculating on end times things. Uh, This has been a favorite sport of Christian people for millennia now. This is not a new phenomenon. As I was doing my PhD dissertation on Calvin's eschatology, um, I was personally amused by the translator of Calvin's commentary on Daniel. His name was John Owen, not the Puritan John Owen, but a man who lived in the 19th century. 
and uh, he was talking about some of the eschatological speculation that was going on during the um, Reformation. And a number of uh, uh, Reformation figures, famous people like Martin Luther and uh, Philip Melanchthon especially, and a number of others were tremendous eschatological speculators. Melanchthon especially. He was always looking at the signs of the times of the 16th century. Luther, as I've mentioned before, um, was translating the Old, Old, Old Testament into German. And as he was doing that work, as he was translating the Old Testament into German, he jumped out of order and did the book of Daniel early on, right away. And when he was asked why he was doing that, he said, well, the, the end times runs along so swiftly and excellently that I actually do not think I will finish translating uh, the Old Testament before the Lord returns. And so that was Luther. He finished that work uh, in under seven years. So that gave him a sense. That gave you a sense of how urgent and immediate he thought the end was. Um, I think he was looking at the potential invasion of Europe by the Turks. Uh, he was looking at all kinds of things radically changing in Europe, and he wondered if the end of the world was imminent. Philip Melanchthon thought so even more. Calvin hated eschatological speculation, did not want to go in for it at all, so much so that he almost ignored the book of Revelation. I mean, he did believe it was canonical scripture. He did refer to it in one of his earliest writings, uh, uh, a little tract against the doctrine of soul sleep. And that's an eschatological topic, namely what happens to individual people who die, what happens to their souls between the time of death and the general resurrection. Um, and there's a doctrine, some people believe that they go into a somewhat of a cryogenic or a soul sleep state, and then everybody's awake, uh, awakened at the, at the final resurrection. And he rejects this. He says this is not um, biblical teaching. Uh, but so he, and he quotes the book of Revelation favorably, et cetera, and then he just about ignores it. He doesn't refer to it at all in letters. He doesn't do anything with it at all. He was just trying to stay away from eschatological speculation. Uh, but he did do a commentary in the book of Daniel, so there's, it's really hard to avoid. Um, and he was talking about the millennial reign of Christ, and, and he just had a hard time imagining Christ sitting on pillows like a Turkish sultan ruling in Jerusalem. He had a hard time with that, and he just didn't want to speculate about it all. Well, that was Calvin. But the translator, John Owen, as he was translating Calvin's commentary in Daniel, uh, just thought all of that um, Reformation-era uh, eschatological speculation was so foolish. Everybody knows, uh, based on clear prophecy from the book of Daniel, um, uh, that, it, that the rise of the Ottoman Empire is predicted. There's no doubt about it. And so I'm reading this blast from the past, namely from the 19th century, that it was the Ottoman Empire that was going to usher in the final uh, era and that we all needed to watch and see what was happening uh, with the leadership of the Turkish Empire there. Well, for us, I mean, post-World War I, uh, we really haven't worried much about the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the time for that is, is over. Uh, it really uh, you know, went back down into the dust. Uh, the Tur Turkish nation is not uh, the great world power it was uh, during that era of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it really is nothing. And then along comes other books like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have seen that? Have you read it? All right, you're aware of it, a few of you. Very, very popular. A big event uh, in history, 1948, the start of modern, the modern nation of Israel. And with that came a whole raft of 1970s era eschatological speculation and things. It's just great to get these books. You really ought to collect them and read them. Um, I have one written in the 19... 1980s on Saddam Hussein and the uh, new Babylon that he was building there and how he was going to be uh, the leader of the new Babylon and all that kind of thing. A direct fulfillment of um, uh, Revelation 18, the fall of Babylon, all that kind of thing. Uh, and I've got that book. I'm holding on to that. They're, they're really precious uh, as time goes on. Um, yes, go ahead. They're really foolish, weren't they? <laughs> What's that? These people. Oh, Saddam Hussein? No, the people writing these books, they're really foolish. Um, well, not so much. I guess uh, the, the real danger comes in linking together um, the uh, words of scripture, scripture to the immediate current events and saying, I see in Saddam Hussein the book of Revelation. What I, I, what I would recommend doing is saying, okay, throughout for hundreds of years, these kinds of things have pushed up on the Christian church. Uh, and I would say that a sense of the urgency and the immediacy of the return of Christ uh, is commanded in scripture there's no doubt about it but wedding it together steve and others to current events saying this is what this scripture teaches is dangerous because what it ends up doing is it it, it puts the current event as the interpreter of scripture and and it makes it more difficult for us to say what are the sure and certain truths that christ has taught us about the future 
And that's our purpose here. What are the sure and certain truths that we know are unshakable? For example, is the Lord physically going to return to earth? Is he? Is there going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked? Is there going to be a judgment at which the righteous and the wicked are going to have to give an account for every careless word they've spoken? Yes. Is Saddam Hussein, the builder of the new Babylon, spoken of in Revelation 18? Well, right now it's not looking too good about that. <laughs> so what I want to do is, is unravel those things that are surely and certainly taught in Scripture and those things that aren't. Yes. Sharon had something interesting that you mentioned to me a while ago. He said, you know, Satan does know Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah. So he has to set things up mm-hmm. every century mm-hmm. to be able to have an antichrist ready at any time because he does not know. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to continue to um, make a false antichrist and things look good to match with, you know, what God is doing. Yeah, and in general, the best right. counterfeit is close. Right, and what is Satan's general goal? Isn't it to undermine confidence in the Word of God? You know, has God really said such and such? It's been his program from the very beginning. And so anything that he can do to undermine confidence in the word of God is very much to his purpose. For me, what I want to do is I want to look at the scriptures. And here's the thing. There is going to be a final generation. There are going to be sure and certain signs of the second coming of Christ. We, uh, there is going to be a generation that will be able to look at certain things. It, this is my confident, uh, confidence here that there are going to be certain things that are in the Bible, have been in the Bible all along, they're going to be acutely vivid to that final generation that were just hazy to the generations that preceded. Uh, in other words, just as the first coming of Christ uh, makes very, very clear the prophecies that were written hundreds of years beforehand because they lived it, they saw Christ, they were able to see those things, so also those that will in fact be the final generation, uh, some of those details perhaps in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation uh, will be very clear to them. Uh, seal up. The, the vision until the final time, said uh, the Lord to Daniel. And so it, it was pre- pretty much indicated to Daniel that that wasn't for him, you know. But there is a generation that will understand it completely. So um, I want to make a distinction here uh, between personal and general esch- eschatology. Personal eschatology has to do with the individual, what's going to happen to us individually. Uh, that deals with such things as, I, would, I, I started here listing death, but even before that, um, what's going to happen from now until your death? Okay, and what is going to happen from now until your death? The tremendous amount of power is going to be exerted by God to finish the saving work that he began in you. A tremendous amount of power is going to be exerted by God to keep you believing in Jesus. A tremendous amount of power exerted at the right hand of God, interceding for you that your faith will not fail. That's all last things for you. And he's going to keep you in him. He's going to keep his strong hand on you until you die. But then what? All right, well then, uh, you know, those are details of personal eschatology that we're going to go into, but things like the question of the intermediate state, what happens to the soul before the general resurrection, those are issues of personal eschatology. The doctrine of the resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked, uh, judgment and the eternal state. These are all matters of personal eschatology. Then there's general eschatology, the rise and fall of the nations, the future history of Israel, the Antichrist, cataclysmic events in the heavens and on the earth, final battle, the kingdom of God, the millennium, judgment day, new heavens and new earth. This is what you could call macro or general uh, eschatology. I think there's a very strong connection between the two because God is always able to keep his eye both on the individual and also on the big picture, the rise and fall of nations. He's able to do all of that. But I just think that's a helpful distinction to make between uh, personal eschatology and general eschatology. Um, There is a theme of eschatological study that I think is helpful, and that's the idea of inaugurated eschatology or the already and the not yet. There's some things that are already taking place, and they have been for 2,000 years. They're continuing on. They were inaugurated or begun by the first coming of Christ, and they are unfolding now. And yet there are some things that haven't yet happened, the already and the not yet. Uh, the basic concept then, the first coming of Christ begins the end times. Dear children, this is the last hour, said John in First John 2.18. We've already seen. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we are living now in the last days and will be until the end of the world. Um, The kingdom of God began uh, when Christ came, but it will grow. It has been growing and it will continue to grow until it is perfected by the power of God. Uh, The whole church age, uh, which began at that time, occurs during the last times. There is not an essential difference between what the church has experienced for the last 2,000 years and what we will experience to the end, but a great difference in degree and intensity. In other words, Satan has been hating on us and opposing us and killing us, you know, martyrs, etc., from the very start. And that will continue. However, greatly intensified. There have been many antichrists, uh, as Joyce pointed out, and there will be, I believe, a final antichrist. We could use a capital A uh, to describe his uh, life. But again, this is clearly taught in 1 John 2. Um, the key, key passage on this inaugurated eschatology really focus on the kingdom of God already here but not yet come. For example, in Ephesians, sorry, in, in um, Matthew 4:17, it says, "From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Uh, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near is one way you could translate the Greek word there. Uh, even more potently, I think in Matthew 12:28, it's uh, Jesus is speaking to his enemies who are accusing him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. Uh, It's a very, very poignant moment here as Jesus faces his enemies. And uh, they were saying it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. And Jesus gives a whole array of answers to him, um, to them. And one one of the things he says is, if... It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, in other words, the kingdom of God is here as he drives out demons. That's what he's saying there. But in the same manner, the kingdom of God has not yet come. We have a sense of that very poignantly in uh, Matthew 6.10, right in the uh, Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and then may your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, we're, uh, we're praying for a kingdom yet to come. I wonder if there's a direct connection between the coming of the kingdom and God's will being done on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven. That's the way I tend to hear that. That's the way I tend to understand it, that the coming of the kingdom is the perfection of God's will being done both in heaven and on earth in the same way. But at any rate, we uh, would say that has not yet come, and that's why to that end we labor and to that end we pray, etc. So that's a, a sense of the inaugurated eschatology, things that are already here and those things that have not yet come. Another important issue with eschatology, and this is a, a very important theme for me as I interpret the book of Revelation and also the uh, uh, little apocalypse of Matthew 24. And that is this idea of recapitulation. Um, there's a strong statement uh, that Jesus makes, and we'll get to it in a moment, as it was and so it will be. The key idea then is that history is essentially linear, but yet events occur that will be repeated in some manner in the final generation. Uh, by uh, saying that hi- history is linear, we look at Revelation 22:13. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we do not have the uh, Eastern view of history uh, being cyclical, You know, the idea of reincarnation, uh, the idea that uh, things just are swirling around, there's no real purpose, there's this karma thing, we're trying to escape this endless cycle. Uh, We believe uh, that that like a day, a day has a beginning, a middle, and an an end. Like a life, uh, you're born, you live, you die. So also history had a start, it has a middle, and it will come to an end. And Jesus is all of that. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. So history is linear, and yet he says... Uh, in Matthew 24, 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. As it was, so it will be. And what I get out of that is that we can look for certain things that are acted out in space and time, acted out in history, uh, that give us uh, indications of some things that are going to be recapitulated, they are going to be endured or gone through again, only in a far greater way, a far greater scale at the end of the world. In other words, the flood of Noah is a picture of the final judgment. The same theme is picked up in 2 Peter 3. Uh, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end of the world. There's a a similarity between the two. Now, it's not a perfect similarity, but there is a a point of connection. So also with the idea of Antichrist. 
We've already mentioned this. There have been many antichrists. There will continue to be antichrists. Right? One could argue, based on 1 John 2, that someone like a Hitler is an antichrist. Significant false teachers that have brought in destructive heresies have been antichrist or the spirit of the antichrist was in them. I think we generally tend to look at, at, uh, at powerful leaders, anti-Christian leaders, uh, as being a picture of the antichrist. But if they die and history continues, they are not the antichrist, you understand. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that Christ is going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth and with the splendor of his coming. So if that didn't happen, he wasn't the Antichrist. He's just an Antichrist, you see. So it's a recapitulation. And that's a way of understanding, I think, a lot of the prophecies of the book of Daniel, the little horn, those kinds of things, things that occur in history, like Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who, who defiled the, uh, the temple with pig's blood, uh, a picture, I think, of what the Antichrist will do at the end. So there's a recapitulation theme. Things that happened in the past, it will happen again. Even, I think, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone falling down from heaven, a picture of some things that will happen again at the end of the world. All of those things. So that's an important idea when we come to eschatology. Um, I also want to talk about this issue of prophecy and God's exhaustive foreknowledge. In recent times, uh, very recent, there is a heresy uh, called open theism uh, which is free willism run amok. Um, and the basic idea is that God cannot know the choices made by free will individuals like men and angels. Not that he chooses not to know, he can't know them. I mean, that's amazing. The more you stop and think about it, I'm not sure what Bible they're reading. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment, but this is, what, this is what they're teaching. That instead, God has enough power and enough wisdom to be able to react constantly to the free will decisions made by billions of people and still keep his plan generally on track. But he can't know for sure that, for example, Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. He can't know that for sure. Peter has to make that decision. He can't know for certain anything about the future when it comes to human decisions or those of angels. Uh, like I said, I consider this a heresy, and it doesn't really fit into the Bible at all, but there's a different theme here as well. It is God's unique glory to know the future. It is unique to him, perfectly to know the future. Well, why do I say that? I think Joyce picked up on it already, but Satan can't know the future. Why not? I'm not saying you can't know what God's revealed in the Bible. I'm not saying that we can't know elements of the future. That's why we're here to study. But I'm saying we don't know the future the way God does. Why not? Why can no created being know the future the way God does? Who has known the mind of God? Okay. All right. Very, very good. Or even in Isaiah 7, which I just preached on this past Sunday, when, when these human uh, beings, uh, these rulers, made a plan, remember? And they're going to invade Judah, and they're going to topple the king, the Davidic king, and they're going to set up the t- king of Tabeel, or the son of Tabeel over it, and, gonna, and that's all, that's their plan. What did God say about that? No. <laughs> I mean, you can make your plans, but no. All right? It will not take place, it will not happen. How often does God say that? It will not take place, it will not happen. Well, I can't count all the thoughts and plans of human beings, all right? So bottom line, it is God's sovereignty that connects then to his foreknowledge. It isn't just that he knows or that he's an astute judge of character. All right, he is. But it's far more than that. It's that he's made decisions about what will happen. He's decreed them and they were therefore happen and he throws his own sovereignty behind it. And all other plans, including Satan's, are subservient to that. He's got to ask permission. And if God says no, it won't happen. So therefore only God is to his unique glory to know the future because it's, it's all got to do with his decrees and his plans. And so uh, Isaiah really brings this out plainly in Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Behold, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. That's to his glory. Again, Isaiah 41, 22 through 24. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. This is God speaking to the idols. All right. He's talking to the idols and he's saying, do something. 
All right, but especially, do you notice, tell the future so that we can know that you are God's. Do you see that? It's, it's to God's glory to be able to predict the future. Again, Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you see how he links his ability to predict the future with an appeal to humanity to turn to him and be saved? He's the only one that can know the future, and therefore you ought to trust in him. One of the reasons we have such intense uh, interest in the future is that we don't know it and we're fearful of the unknown. The future might be dark, hard things, bad things might happen to us and we're afraid of being hurt. We don't want to be hurt and therefore we want some assurance that things will turn out well. Well, things will turn out well, friends, in Christ. Things will turn out gloriously well. And how beautiful is that, therefore, that we should receive that kind of assurance from God. But he bases an appeal here to the whole world on his ability to predict the future. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. One example of God's astounding ability in very great detail to predict the future I found when I was doing scripture memorization in the book of Daniel. Look at the last page of your handout. And I have printed for you here every, every verse of Daniel 11. And what I did was I went through and I highlighted all of the places that the future tense helping verb will appears. Helping word, all right? This is, these are, in English, this is how we do future tense, okay? What do you notice? <laughs> 122 uses of the word will in 45 verses. Some of these verses have six uses of the word will in one verse. Now, the versification is neither here nor there. What is interesting is in such a short amount of time uh, that there are this many, 122 specific predictions. And what period of time does it cover? Well, it covers, I believe, the period of time after Alexander the Great when his uh, empire is divided among his generals. And then we have the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and all that. And we have this king of the north and the king of the south. And in my opinion, they're battling over Palestine going back and forth. And they're two petty little kings with their petty little pathetic kingdoms. And they've got little armies going back and forth and they're making little plots and schemes. And somebody rises up and tries to give somebody else's daughter in marriage to ruin him, but it doesn't work out the way he plans. And back and forth it goes. And all of this, as I told you, I think is a, a, a picture of some elements of the future reign of Antichrist over Palestine. But it's also God putting on display what he can do. You see, I can do this. <laughs> I can know the future to this exhaustive level of detail. It's really quite astounding. It's, the, I think, the most ex extraordinary display of God's ability to predict minor details. This isn't focused on the first or the second coming of Christ particularly, but just some ebbs and flows uh, between nations and how God knows all these things. My favorite verse, I think, in, in this is uh, verse uh, 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and will lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. I just love that. Doesn't that put us in our place? All right, these two evil guys trying to work something out, sitting at the same table, maybe at the United Nations, wherever it is they're sitting, and they're lying to each other, but it doesn't make a difference because everything's right on schedule and what God intends to do. So at any rate, that's just a picture. We're not going to exegete Daniel 11. All I, all I want to establish here is how accurately God can predict the future. And frankly, friends, apart from that, we are wasting our time here tonight. Uh, there's no point in even discussing it because not one of us knows what the weather's going to be like in eight days or even tomorrow for sure. None of us knows if we're, uh, James chapter 4, even going to be alive tomorrow. So we are, what, what are we? We're, we're a mist, uh, a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes. We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen except that God tells us and we believe it. We, we, he tells us the future and we, by faith, accept it and say the Lord speaks truth. And his track record is perfect. And so, therefore, everything he tells us about the future will most certainly come to pass. So, there are different major systems of eschatology. There are three major systems and different versions of those three major systems. They uh, focus on the issue of the millennial reign of Christ. The word uh, millennium, I think, is a Latin, uh, Latinized word, which means thousand years. And uh, it comes from Revelation 20. There are different views on the millennium and different types of, uh, of or, or categories of each of these three major views. There is premillennialism, 
there is uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism. Uh, these are the three major ones. Um, premillennialism, uh, the pre uh, refers uh, to the second coming of Christ and how it relates to the thousand-year reign of Christ. The idea then is that Christ bodily returns to earth and then reigns on earth for a thousand years. Um, so Christ's uh, second coming comes before that. That's where you have the word pre. There are different kinds of premillennialism. Probably the two most important are or noteworthy are historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Um, the descriptions I got for this I got from um, Elwell's uh, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Let me, let me read uh, what it says on premillennialism. The premillennialist believes that the return of Christ will be preceded by signs, including wars, famines, earthquakes, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, a great apostasy, the appearance of Antichrist, and the great tribulation. These events culminate in the second coming, which will result in a period of peace and righteousness when Christ and his saints control the world. This rule is established suddenly through supernatural methods rather than gradually over a long period of time by means of the conversion of individuals. That should say, sorry. The Jews will figure prominently in the future age because the premillennialist believes that they will be converted in large numbers and will again have a prominent place in God's work. Nature will have the curse removed from it. Even the desert will produce abundant crops. Uh, Christ will restrain evil during this age by the use of authoritarian power, just by the rod of iron that comes from his mouth, that kind of thing. Despite idyllic conditions of this golden age, there is a final rebellion of wicked people against Christ and his saints. This exposure of evil is crushed by God. The non-Christian dead are resurrected. The last judgment conducted and the eternal states of heaven and hell are established. So those are the basic themes of premillennialism, both of historic and dispensational premillennialism. Famous for charts, as some have said, if you can't chart it, don't believe it. Some of you perhaps grew up with uh, charts like this. I'm sorry about the size, um, but you know you can get these things on the Internet if you want to look at it in more detail. Um, I can't read that. I mean, my eyesight's getting worse. Um, so, uh, But at any rate, there's a sense of the flow. And for the most part, I think these charts tend to follow the book of Revelation. You know, they try to understand this, the, the era of the seven churches, um, the, uh, uh, the seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and, and just unfold it in a generally a chronological order and trying to make sense of as much of biblical prophecy as possible. So here are two possible charts, etc. So that's um, millennialism. Then there's amillennialism. Uh, amillennialism is a bit of a misnomer, I think. The implication is that there is no millennium and they don't believe that. Uh, but what they uh, would deny is that there's going to be a physical reign of Christ on earth. In other words, they think that there is some thousand years, the thousand years is a metaphor for um, uh, Christ's uh, uh, reign through his saints. Um, what am I doing? I'll just read what he said here. Um, Amillennialism states that the Bible does not predict a period of the rule of Christ on the earth before the last judgment. According to this outlook, there will be a continuous development of good and evil in the world until the second coming of Christ when the dead shall be raised and the judgment conducted. Amillennialists believe that the kingdom of God is now present in the world as the victorious Christ rules his church through the word and the spirit. They feel that the future glorious and perfect kingdom refers to the new earth and life in heaven. Thus, Revelation 20 is a description of the souls of dead believers reigning with Christ in heaven. So, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology's definition. Um, the third major type or system is postmillennialism. Postmillennialists emphasize the present aspects of God's kingdom, which will reach fruition in the future. They believe that the millennium will come through Christian preaching and teaching. Such activity will result in a more godly, peaceful, and prosperous world. The new age will not be essentially different from the present, and it will come about as more people are converted to Christ. Evil will not be totally eliminated during the millennium, but will be, it will be reduced to a minimum as the moral and spiritual influence of Christians is increased. During the new age... The church will uh, assume greater importance and many economic, social, and educational problems can be solved. This period is not necessarily limited to a thousand years because the number can be used symbolically. The millennium closes with the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. Uh, Postmillennialism was much more popular over a hundred years ago. Uh, I think two world wars, especially the first world war, just kind of wiped it out. Um, the idea is that everything, every, every way, in, in every way, things were getting better and better, 
there was that sense at the end of the 1800s, and so therefore uh, it seemed to be in vogue to see that the gospel was having tremendous influence, and uh, we just needed to be generally optimistic. Uh, it is making a bit of a, re a resurgence here um, in recent times, um, uh, but it's not as widely popular as it was at the time. So those are the three basic systems that you have. They all focus uh, somewhat on the millennium. Now, uh, what I'd like to do is give you some of the basic puzzle pieces of eschatology, some of the things that I think are taught in the Bible, or at least they're issues that you have to deal with, with one supporting scripture each. My purpose here is to just give you a general overview of the various topics that we're going to be looking at this summer and uh, some verses that support them. And I've given them to you in, in more or less chronological order um, by my limited <laughs> knowledge of how to put those together. Others might put some of these in a different order, and I'm not holding to this order as inerrant as the verses that are quoted here. Okay, So the verses are inerrant, the order is not. Uh, it's difficult to put this whole thing together in a system that we can feel as certain about as we do about the verses that support the system. Okay, So we start with the kingdom arriving, as we've already talked about. From that day, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, with that, the end times begin, uh, the final era of history. Uh, as I've already quoted Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Um, in that time, we deal with the doctrine of the intermediate state. The intermediate state means what happens at, uh, to the soul at death before the resurrection. So that's what we mean by that. Um, for the Christian, um, uh, I chose the King James Version here. I think it's a pretty f uh, famous expression. 2 Corinthians 5.8, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So that's a, a very famous expression, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, John Calvin in his uh, uh, tract Against Soul Sleep said, What is it that is when, when absent from the body is present with the Lord? Um, he was basically arguing against those that say the immortality of the soul is an idea from Greek philosophy and is not any part of Christian faith. And he rejected that, saying, what then is it that would be absent from the body and present with the Lord except the soul? So the idea is that we, uh, if we die, we are in conscious fellowship with God until the resurrection. Uh, there are other verses that support these things. I'm not intending to go deep into these. I'm just going across the top and giving you topics. Uh, for the non-Christian, Luke 16:23 indicates um, suffering. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So it's that uh, story, a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So uh, some kind of torment or suffering even before the resurrection. Along with this, from Matthew 24, comes the spread of the gospel. Matthew 24:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the spread of the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom, the fact that the kingdom is going to grow, it's not going to stay the same, that, his, uh, that repentance and forgiveness of sins are going to be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. And that has characterized the last 2,000 years, the incredible, the overwhelming, the awesome spread of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, all of us should be immensely encouraged at what's happened in, in that area in the last 100 years. Uh, if you know anything about just how widespread evangelical faith was 100 years ago, um, uh, it's just exploded in the last 100 years. And so you can see the power of God really advancing or accelerating uh, the spread of the gospel. Then there's the issue of the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great distress. Uh, another translation would be tribulation. Unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So, again, the idea of, of tribulation and suffering, of such an order that nothing has ever been like it, um, you know, or to that magnitude or to that, uh, that immense level. So the, the great tribulation. Now, part of that, of course, uh, there are all kinds of details, friends, that we can get from the book of Revelation trying to understand these things, also, in my opinion, from the book of Daniel, that give us a sense of what kind of suffering Christians would have to go through. Um, the apostasy, part of that, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, uh, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Uh, there are other verses that teach uh, that and there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather the lovers of God. That uh, characterizes the apostasy, the falling away, 
uh, second, uh, I think it's Second Timothy chapter 3, I think, maybe 4. Um, the apostasy, uh, also Matthew 24, uh, 12 and 13, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Then there is the Antichrist. Um, though the word isn't used in Second Thessalonians 2, uh, it's used, uh, I think, only in First John. Yet, I think we're dealing with the same uh, individual here. First John tells us, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. So that establishes both the idea of many Antichrists and one final Antichrist. But uh, this verse teaches uh, even more about him. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. By the way, that's a very provocative expression, setting himself up in God's temple. And uh, it's caused me a great deal of thought to meditate on how we uh, put that idea together with the book of Hebrews, which says that the old covenant is obsolete. Uh, The indication from the book of Hebrews is that God will never again accept uh, animal sacrifice because it's an insult to the finished work of Christ. So we can talk about that in due time with the career of the Antichrist. Um, also, the signs in the heavens, judgments on the earth, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Um, Matthew 24:29. immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Again, Revelation 8, 7 through 10. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet. And something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet. And a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. That's just a clip or a piece of the book of Revelation, but you've read it, you know what kind of cataclysms are predicted in that book for the surface of the earth, what kind of judgments there will be even in the signs in the heavens. Um, then there's the issue of the salvation of Israel, this famous statement in Romans 11:26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So the fact that Israel, the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham have a future, uh, that there is uh, a focus on them. Uh, even to the end of the world. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ, uh, Matthew 24:30. at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I put the rapture here. If others want to put it elsewhere, I respect that. I understand the pre-tribulation rapture and the mentality and the views, the verses that support it. But uh, both in Matthew 24 and in 1 Thessalonians 4, they are so intimately connected with the second coming of Christ that it's hard for me to see it any other way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So we'll have some time to talk more about the rapture and its teaching. The idea is to meet the Lord in the air or in the clouds. The word rapture uh, isn't actually in the scripture, but it's the idea of being caught up. That Those words are in, you know, the, the, he'll send out his angels and they'll gather the elect from the four winds from one of the heavens to the other and they'll catch them up and meet the Lord in the air. Then there's the idea of a final battle, Armageddon. Um, Revelation 16:16. 16, 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The rider on the horse is Christ, can be no other. And so Christ in his second coming glory comes back to fight against uh, those rebellious ones who gather, who assemble together against him. It's really quite amazing when you stop and think who would ever do that. 
who could ever take on Almighty God and fight him. But it's their nature. It's the nature of rebellion. And to see it reach that point, all the kings of the earth gathered together, uh, I think led by Antichrist, and Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven, who seem to be just there as witnesses, by the way. They don't seem to do much fighting, by the way. Have you noticed? Who is it that does all the killing in this verse? It's Jesus, all right? He just speaks and it's done. So what do you need all the angels for? Um, Jesus is omnipotent. If he speaks your demise, you are dead. Uh, it's that simple. He's, he's got all power. And so he returns and establishes quite plainly his power even over these, rebel, uh, these rebels. Then there is the doctrine of the millennium. It seemed best to just quote this whole section of Revelation 20 because the thousand years are mentioned so consistently in here. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of, then who, of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection the second death has no power over them but they will be priests of god and of christ and will reign with him for a thousand years so you can see the phrase thousand years repeated uh, multiple times in that passage then there is the doctrine of the general resurrection by this we mean the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked uh, probably the best verse on this is john 5 28 and 29 but there are others as well do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So this is the doctrine of the general resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked. And then the doctrine of the final judgment, Revelation 20, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was opened, which uh, is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Really, there are many verses that teach on the final judgment. This is just one. Um, and then the doctrine of the new heavens and the new earth. Probably, if I'd, I probably should have put a separate letter uh, for the topic of the destruction of the present earth, although you already saw that in the cataclysmic judgments that come to the surface of the earth. But uh, here is 2 Peter 3.10. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So that's a, a clearing of the present order, the present physical world. Um, and then Revelation 21.1, of course, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And along with that, of course, the new Jerusalem. Uh, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully uh, dressed for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, I want you to understand also uh, in the final judgment, if I had just quoted a little bit longer, it says um, everyone whose name is not found written in the book is thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. So I would probably have a separate letter also for the doctrine of hell. Hell being a, a place where uh, those who have not had their sins forgiven through faith in Christ spend eternity in uh, actual torment um, under the wrath of God. So those are the pieces, as far as I can see, the, the big pieces of eschatology, the issues that we need to deal with. Weaving them together in a system is the work of the premillennialist, the amillennialist, and the postmillennialist as they look at these things. But these are verses that support these uh, themes. Any questions about these pieces before we start looking at them individually across the summer? Anything at all? You're all just stunned, amazed, overwhelmed. Yes. I have a question, but not really about the pieces. Hang on a second. Go ahead. Go ahead. In the mention of Lazarus yeah. and that realm, where yeah. you have the two um, places divided by the chasm. Right. Um, we, on that previous bullet point, you refer to that place as hell, as right. it was the rich man was there. Right. But it seems as though there's one place in which 
Lazarus is, as well as the rich man, um, if, you, if you believe or, or accept the idea of a Hades with both places or something. Yeah, and a, a carefully developed doctrine of the intermediate state is one of the hardest aspects of eschatology. You know, and many point to that passage and make distinctions on, based on the word Hades or hell, etc. And I think those are valid observations. Quite frankly, it's not, not one of the stronger elements of my own eschatology to make a, a careful distinction between what happens to the wicked after they're dead but before the general resurrection. I just believe they're in some kind of torment and some kind of suffering and that the righteous are in some sense with the Lord uh, enjoying fruit of their labor, etc., but they are disembodied at that point because the resurrection hasn't occurred. And so also I believe that the uh, wicked, I believe there's going to be a quantum leap in suffering after Judgment Day, after the general resurrection, when they are raised up out of their graves. That, that's my best understanding. Others have different views. What point did you believe there is a place where you have the righteous and the wicked where they can see each other and converse, or is that more an illustration for the parable. Those are two different ways to interpret that passage. Both of them are reputable ways. For myself, it's hard to know. I mean, it seems in Jesus' story that he can see Abraham. He looks up and sees, you know, uh, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, and he talks to him about it, and uh, he thinks it's possible maybe that, that you know, Lazarus can cross the chasm and, and dip a finger in water and cool his suffering tongue. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's all in how you interpret a parable and is that a parable or an active description of something? Um, but I think there's clearly some suffering going on for that man. Yes, Susan. No. Regarding the millennium and um, the, the thousand years, right. like 21 through 6, right. um, you know, I'm thinking of how to interpret the thousand years. Mm-hmm. And people have been debating for a long time whether right. in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, whether day really is a day or not. And right. So I, I guess my question is what kind of, tools of biblical study can you use to determine whether a thousand years really is a thousand years or, I mean, I guess that's the whole... That's the whole question, isn't it? I mean, when you come to the book of Revelation, how are you going to interpret the numbers there? How are you going to interpret the words? Is there symbolic language? Is there literal language? I frequently don't make a choice between the two. I think it's both symbolic and literal. Um, You know, it's been my general home base when I come to the book of Revelation. Um, you know, the, the whole framework hypothesis in Genesis 1, namely that we can see a certain order of beauty to uh, day 1, day 2, day 3, uh, day 4, day 5, day 6. I don't deny any of that. I also think it happened in a little 24-hour period. So in other words, God's able to do both. He's able to have things be exactly as they're printed on the page and have it also have symbolic and spiritual meaning as well. So I'm not trying to cop out. I just think that God loves symbolism and that he's able to orchestrate history to give it to us. Um, I, I think both of those things are true. Whether the truth is so all-pervasive that it's like um, ripples outside, yeah. you know, there's the actual impact of the stone, right. and that's the actual fulfillment. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to just have this state uh, saying, I believe the Bible, I believe it's true, I believe there's fig- figurative and symbolic language in apocalyptic literature, etc. I think it could very well be literally true that there'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ. could also be that it was just meant to symbolize this uh, period of the church age when the saints have some kind of authority and power over Satan and are able to advance the gospel and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, I understand all that. Um, I'm trying to avoid the cop-out. I'm trying my best to pray through and say what I really think about the millennium. But thankfully, I don't have to do that tonight, I don't think. Um, I've got a few more weeks. Um, But uh, for myself, it makes sense that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and that God, uh, Christ will show us how it's done um, on earth and then et cetera. The one problem I have with some of the millennial schemes is that they tend to minimize the eternal state, which would be the last thing you'd want to minimize. There's an immense focus on the thousand years and a kind of a minimization of the eternal state, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and all that eternity that we're going to be spending forever. That would make no sense to me at all, to minimize that as a minor doctrine while we make the millennium a major doctrine. That doesn't make much sense to me. Um, Other questions about the puzzle pieces here? All right, well, let's talk uh, in our final 10 minutes about the benefits of studying this. What are the benefits in studying um, eschatology? Uh, there are many, and these, this is not in any way an exhaustive list. Uh, first of all is to uh, enable us to live in hope. Um, we ought to be more than just optimistic. Okay, We ought to be hopeful. All right, And hopeful should be a rich, theologically informed state of soul for you. Okay, We were saved in hope. All right, Hope is a big deal. 
faith, hope, and love. These things are major issues of the human soul. So we should have a vibrant, strong hope based on the sovereignty of God and his promises. Things are going to be more than just, they're going to more than just turn out okay. Okay? It's going to be overwhelmingly blessed. And we ought to be living with that kind of joy. It's a great insult, I think, to the Lord to not be filled with joy. We're commanded to be joyful always. And there is nothing that any of you folks or me is going through today, tonight, that should squelch your joy in the promises of your future eternity with God. And actually, I consider it for myself, I'll just speak for myself, um, a great sin to allow circumstances of my life, financial, physical, relational, to squelch my joy in what God's promised us here for the future. So we ought to be feeding our joy with these promises. We ought to look ahead to what God's giving us, and we ought to be excited about it and go back again and again and read about it. I don't know how many times I've finished sermons, even funeral sermons, whatever, with another, yet another reading from Revelation 21. Uh, I can never read it too much. I was like, oh, that chapter again. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down. You know, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, all that stuff. Oh, my goodness. We should be feeding our hope. We should be extremely hopeful people. So, therefore, this is one verse on that. Revelation, sorry, Romans 8, 23 through 25. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. So, there's a balanced view of life right there. You know, sorrowful yet always rejoicing is another way of saying it. Um, as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In what hope, by the way? What is the redemption of the body? What are we referring to there? That's the resurrection. That's the finish line of individual salvation. It's a glorified body. In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So study eschatology so that you can wait for it patiently. Study eschatology so you can wait for it joyfully, no matter what you're going through. And by the way, that's going to be a tremendous testimony to those who do not have your hope. They're going to want to know why you have this hope in you. And so it may even be that if you really immerse yourself in this kind of hope-filled meditation, that God will bring trials in your life to put you on display so that you will be so very different than those that are going through the exact same trials but don't have your hope. And therefore, you will be so visibly different from them that you'll be able to testify to the hope that is in you, the hope of Christ. You may already be going through those trials now. So if so, this is a good time for you to shine. Um, I'm not speaking facetiously. I'm really not. I, I just think we need to rejoice. Secondly, living in wisdom, ready at any moment. We need to be ready today, tonight, for the Lord to come back. That's the clear teaching of the end of his cycle of, of parables and other instructions in Matthew 24 and on into 25. You need to be ready now for the second coming of Christ. Ready now. Because he's going to come when he's going to come. And he's not going to consult with your or my system of eschatology when he comes. Okay? He will come. And he will come, it says, like a thief in the night without asking anyone's permission. We are all, all of us, forewarned. All of us. And so, therefore, we need to be ready all the time for the second coming of Christ. So beware any system of eschatology that so boxes the Lord in to say he cannot come back until every unreached people group has been reached with the God. Listen, he can come back whenever he chooses. He defines his unreached and people group the way he chooses. He can come back any time, and we ought to think of it that way. You can't come back yet. Such and such hasn't happened to Israel. Look, he will come back when he comes back. I'm not saying we can't study things, but let's be ready at any moment. Therefore, keep watch, Matthew 24, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. What does that teach you? Doesn't it teach you be a wise man, a wise woman, be ready now, be about what God has given you to do so that when he returns, you will not be ashamed of his coming, but you'll be able to say, I was busy doing what you entrusted to me to do. Um, thirdly, boldness in evangelism. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached, Matthew 24, 14, in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
I think this is part of what it means when it says later, as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Um, I think what it means is that we should be active in evangelism. We should be bold in evangelism. I believe a strong sense of the sovereignty of God in evangelism, of election, of predestination, gives us confidence that God will most certainly make our evangelism effective so that we don't have to be afraid or think we're somehow shooting in the dark. But we can go out and rescue those that are perishing with boldness in evangelism. So meditate on end-time teaching because you know that they're all going to be there at the end. Personal holiness, uh, fourthly, is another uh, application of this. Second Peter 3, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question, isn't it? What kind of people? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And what is it called there? The home of righteousness. That is such an important phrase, isn't it? That's where righteousness dwells. So the idea here then is don't do anything not consistent with that place. Don't do anything that you'll be ashamed of in the light of that place. Live a holy life. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Those are strong words, aren't they? Uh, Holiness should come from this. Fifthly, storing up treasure for eternity. Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay? My feeling is it's, it's foolish for us to accumulate things that we are going to lose by death. That's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. It's like buying a bunch of groceries, huge amount of groceries, at the uh, uh, airport about 10 minutes before boarding time, okay? I mean, or, or before you have to go through the gate and they strip it all from you, okay? They take it all. It doesn't make any sense to buy a two-liter bottle of something right before you go through the security gate. I mean, it makes no sense at all. They're going to confiscate it for sure, all right? even if you tell them that it's Sprite and not some other deadly substance. They're going to take it. I had this idea as I was going through a security. I said, well, it's a picture of death, isn't it? When you lose all your stuff, okay? Um, you, know. you know why I lost it this time? It wasn't in a one-quart Ziploc bag. It was, it, it, you know, and the weird thing is something else in my travel kit was in a one-quart Ziploc bag, and he had the bag out there and all the other stuff. He said, well, all the substances are the right size, but it's not in the, in the bag, and so he raked it all into the trash. And by that time, I was like, okay, I just want to go home. So <laughs> I said, put it, put it into the Ziploc bag, and we'll be fine. It's just right there. So I made a mistake, and I paid for it. It wasn't a costly error, but anyway, moving on. Uh, the idea here is that we should not be living for the present world, but rather storing up for eternity. Many verses teach this. Meditation on end-time teaching will also give us fervency and confidence and power in prayer. We should be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. First John 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Is there any sense in praying that Jesus would return to the earth? I mean, he's going to do it, isn't he? Is there any sense in us calling on the Lord to return? I think we ought to. Doesn't Paul do that when he says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus? Doesn't John do that at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus? So I think we ought, to ha- we ought to pray for things that are 1,000% certain going to happen. No doubt about it, okay? Uh, isn't that what Daniel did when he read from the book of Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years? What did he do with that? He got on his knees and prayed that the exile would end now, now that it's been 70 years. He takes the promises of God back to God in prayer. So you take these things we're studying and then pray for them to happen or pray accordingly based on them. Lord, since the Antichrist is coming, All right, help me to prepare my children so that if they are the final generation or if I am, that I will not receive the mark of the beast, that I'll stand firm in the day of testing, that I won't love my life so much as to shrink from death and neither will they. That kind of thing. Pray like that. Anyway, studying eschatology will give you fervency and confidence and power in prayer and courage in the face of death, as I just mentioned a moment ago. 1 Thessalonians um, 4 says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who uh, fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you see what he does? He takes an eschatological doctrine and ministers comfort to people who are grieving. You see? We should take our knowledge of eschatology, 
personal and general eschatology, and minister it to our own hearts and to others. It says later, therefore, comfort one another or encourage one another with these words. We should take these doctrines and, and enable us to, uh, to live courageously in the face of death. We may be the final generation. And when the time comes and you're, and you're faced with uh, receiving the mark of the beast, whatever that means at that point, uh, to deceive even the elect, if that were possible, is it possible? I say no. Because anyone who receives the mark of the beast, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. So we have to be aware. Didn't the Lord tell us ahead of time? Didn't I t- He said, see, I've told you ahead of time. And, and we know the trials that are coming ahead of time. So we can prepare ourselves with all seriousness. And therefore, it says in Job 19, 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So we can die well. We don't have to be uh, fearful of death. All right, right at 7.30. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study in a very general way uh, the things that are going to be before us this summer. Father, I pray that you give us a love for your word and for one another. pray, Father, that you would enable us, O Lord, to uh, take in these things, to wrestle with them, to uh, confess that in the end we're going to still have many questions. There are going to be many things we will not understand. But we do not believe that our... uh, Uh, our our minds will remain in darkness if we study the scriptures carefully and ask by prayer that you illuminate uh, these things. Lord, teach us what they mean. Uh, Help us to know what you would have us to know. Lord, don't leave us in darkness, but help us, O Lord, to know with greater and greater accuracy what you have already committed to us. As the scripture says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. And so I pray, Lord, that we would take these things revealed and study them with great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.